All right, good morning, good morning, good morning. We're going to read some scripture. Toby's going to read some scripture here. Looks like it's Romans 1, page uh, 938. There you go. Good morning. Uh, today's scripture will be Romans 1, 1 through 7. Uh, like John said, page 938. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was a descendant from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Good work, man. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, welcome. We're excited to have Toby and Kayla on board, and uh, we are Grace Life Bible Church. Our values are knowing God, experiencing His grace, and extending His grace, and that sounds so nice and so easy, but it's hard, especially with those closest to us. Growing in grace, impacting those near and far, basically, we are trying to become and make disciples of Jesus. And I said before, everyone makes disciples in our culture. Uh, we just want to make disciples of Jesus, okay? So it just means follower, a learner. We are in Romans, okay? We've been in the Old Testament for a long time. We went through Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, all that. And now we're in the epistles, letters. An epistle is just really a letter that later on people said, hey, that's a really good letter. Let's call it an epistle. Anyway, so we're in Romans, and that's part of the New Covenant. And um, here is the theme, well, this is Romans, a faith journey from ruin to redemption. So Romans is about the journey from ruin to redemption, specifically with Jews and Gentiles. We'll get to that today. It's going to be good. So the theme, I'm not ashamed. Why would he say that? But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. That's important. Everyone who believes to the Jew first. And also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written in the Old Testament, the righteous shall live by faith. So really, really critical verse there. Um, basically, what I'm going to get into today is the Jew-Gentile tension. Um, Paul is excited to apply the gospel to a dividing church in Rome. And that is uh, like a blended family that's not getting along. And this is the context. And he wants them to experience unity. And understanding how the gospel works is the answer to their division. I can just cut to the end right now and say, understanding how the gospel works is the answer to your division and your tension with people. That's it. Let's close and go home. Okay, not so much. So uh, why does Paul write? If you heard it, Toby read this. Um, to bring about the obedience of faith for... The sake of his name among all the nations. So Romans 1.5, he says, I am writing to bring about the obedience of faith for all nations, Jews and Gentiles. At the very end of the book, he says the same thing. This is kind of a bookend technique. Romans 16.26, the pro prophetic writings, Old Testament, has been made to all nations, but or to bring about the obedience of faith. And so Paul is writing so that this church 
would be consistent in obeying and doing the gospel. They believe it's a church. They know the gospel. Faith, not works, check, they've done that. He's like, okay, this is not a what issue. What is the gospel? You've got that figured out. This is a how issue. How do we live, Jews and Gentiles, when we have vastly different experiences? And so this is a super practical experience. And so, again, I just want you to hear, understanding how the gospel works is the answer to this tension. Okay? All right. So, today, here's the title, Gospel Failure. Cracks in the gospel. Like, is your gospel going to fail? Your gospel could fail. All right? Because remember, in the first century, there were other gospels. Gospel, the, the word euangelion, it just means good news. And when, if, you, if you time travel and you go to the first century and you're, you're just finding your way all around and like, where do I buy food? And, and, and you utter the words euangelion, good news, people's first thought is not Jesus or the Bible. Their first thought is the victory benefits of the emperor. The emperor has recently conquered a vast territory, and the good news is now that you get stuff, or more freedoms, or more whatever. The good news, the gospel, is used in the first century in that sense. I've showed you stuff like that before, so I'm not going to get into that too deep, but we will have to get into Hellenism pretty deep, because that paints our, our world and the New Testament world. So Hellenism, it, it, it's everything Greek, and it, it represented a, a huge shift in the way people thought. So there's this guy... Protagoras, who said, man is the measure of all things. And that really is the perfect bumper sticker for all things Hellenistic and our, for our cultural as well, okay? So, before the New Testament era, the Eastern mindset, they were thinking of, of things that were concrete and practical. And, and when the Western world and the Greek way of thinking came in, they started to ask completely different questions, thinking about abstract, unknown things. And so... Um, it just really upset everything. But Hellenism is all about education, healthcare, entertainment, athletics. And you're, you're like, well, wait a minute, that's, that's my world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we live downstream from this and we haven't really got too far away. So, um, Alexander the Great was a great military strategist, but he was super smart in understanding. His military wasn't his greatest weapon. His greatest weapon was worldview. And so he took the idea of Hellenism and he said, if we spread this, everyone will follow it. And they did. And we did. We're downstream of that as well. So part of this, man is the measure. Um, in the, in the, like when I talk about Mesopotamia and Egypt and all this, um, gods were different than mankind. Okay, gods were gods. But Hellenism reshapes God into man's image. So we just invert it, okay? Instead of, instead of um, man made in God's image, now we made God in our image, and we, he serves us. And, and even today, you get this sense that, well, why should I be a Christian? What do I get out of it? How does it help me? How can God serve me? So the same, same kind of questions, all right? It's interesting. So, Alexander the Great. And so if you look at our society, the way our universities teach, it's the Greco-Roman style. The way our politics are run come from that. Our, our um, politics, our athletics, architecture, art, social. You deserve a break today. Have it your way. You deserve the best. Uh, just do it. All these things are just squarely coming from a pleasure-oriented, Hellenistic, serve me, promising power, pleasure, influence, comfort, leisure. So that's, that's the gospel of Hellenism, and, and that, that gospel fails. 
It, it doesn't work. If I pursue pleasure, I still don't feel satisfied, right? All right. The gospel of Rome, the gospel of Rome took the gospel of Hellenism and institutionalized it and put the power of the state behind it. Kind of, kind of legalized it, okay? They're all about politics and power, and it rests on the foundation of the Roman religion, Roman gods. And so this is the world of the New Testament. And then our gospel, how would you define our gospel? This would be fun. If this was a class 50 minutes long, I'd pass out little cards. Or write, write down, explain, what, what is the gospel of America? Where does our hope come from? What, what, what is society driven towards? And, and I, I tried this, but it, it's not so... Well, Wesley helped me out with this part, but... Um, not thoughts and prayers. Actually, there's a bumper sticker that ain't like this. Anyway, that we as a culture value policy and change. And it rests on secular progressive humanism, which basically means we can be good without God. That's what that means. We don't need God. In fact, if you buy into this, it's the religious people that are stopping everything because we want to progress. And you guys have all these hang-ups with right and wrong. That's how they look at us. It's interesting, okay? Anyway, so that's, um, that's the, so which gospel do you believe in? And does your gospel give you pleasure? The gospel of Hellenism promises pleasure. Does your gospel give you power? The gospel of Rome promises power. At least for one person, the emperor, right? That's how that works. Um, the gospel of America promises progress, and, and there's always hope of, but, but no matter how many policy changes we make and, and progress, there, there's always still an underlying decay of the soul that you can't legislate, right? So what gospel do you believe in? And here's the ultimate question. Does your gospel give you peace in the midst of the storm? Does your gospel give just good news? What, what is good news that gives you peace in the middle of tension, all right? Do you ever find yourself embarrassed by the gospel? Paul takes his gospel the gospel of God, he calls it, because he has to differentiate. He says, this is the gospel of God. It's not your gospel. It's a whole other thing. He goes to the hub, the heart of the Roman culture. Rome was where all of the good news of Roman Hellenistic promises came from. And he goes there with his gospel. He's like, I'm not ashamed. This is power. That's amazing. Love it. All right. Do you understand the God of our age? The gospel of our age? Can you identify secular humanism when you see it in a movie? When you catch it on a 30-second, multi-million dollar sermon, which we call commercials? You need to be able to identify those things and go, okay, love the movie, but you're saying this. I don't agree with that, but it's great action. Whatever, you'll have to sort that out, okay? Um, and here, what aspects of secular progressive humanism we can be good without God, pleasure-oriented. What aspects of that are the most insidious to you and your heart? They just creep in, and you find yourself, ah, I'm thinking like that. We want to be aware of those things because it, it does seep in, all right? All right. So, here we go. Um, context is a big deal, and so I've talked about this before, but today we're going to kind of nerd out on political context because if we miss this, we miss a lot of what Paul is doing in Romans. So, political context is important. He says this, well, first off, the, the, the Roman church is mostly Jewish people with some Gentile people in it, okay? And he says this in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, okay, Paul's a Jew, brothers, Jews, um, I have often intended to come to you, Jews, but I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, Jews. 
as well as the rest of the Gentiles. So he's addressing this church. He's like, hey, brothers, want to come visit you? And, and also the Gentiles. He's acknowledging the church in Rome is both Jew and Gentile. Okay, And at Pentecost, um, there were some visitors. So here's, here's um, the year is AD 33, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Pentecost happens in Jerusalem. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, and visitors from Rome. So there are people at Pentecost that take Christianity back with them to Rome. And the church, Paul does not establish the church at Rome. Other people did that. And, um, and so that's what he's doing there. So he then goes, yeah, let's go ahead. The second, I'm just, I had not shown you all like the 59 maps last week, but the second missionary journey, this is Acts 18, the middle of it, the year is now, it's 17 years later, Claudius, Acts 18 says, Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. This is the setting of Romans, okay? Um, the full verse says this, after Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, came home from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had kicked out all the Jews from Rome. So he had to go someplace. Where, where do I go? Okay. So that's the context here, right? What happens, the church is mostly Jewish with some Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles are going to be coming out of this pagan Hellenism, right? And so, so they're going to have baggage. The Jews have been running the church. The Jews, the Jews have the text in their head, in their soul. They have rhymes in their culture and songs about the Jewish, the Old Testament. And so, for, so the Jews have been running the church. The, the Jews are managing the text. It says, uh, there's a verse someplace. Yeah, the Romans 3, 2. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. When the Jews are kicked out of Rome, the Gentiles have to figure it out. Well, well leadership is gone. Spiritual, with all the models for discipleship are gone. The text, we don't even have, who has, who has the copy of that thing they used to read? Or who has that? Trauma. Well, the Gentiles, for six years, figure it out, and they start to do church in their own non-Jewish way. The Gentiles, they're not hostile to the Jews. They just don't. They're unfamiliar and unappreciative of the historical background, the Jewishness of the church that they're doing. And then political things change in the year 57, six years later, and so all the Jews come back to Rome. They come back to church. Hey, we're back. And a lot of these Gentiles who are coming out of paganism doing church in a completely different way than the Jews would do it, are like, well, who are you? Oh, we're, we're going to do church that Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You want to do church in a weird way. We're not Jewish. We don't need your, all your historical heritage stuff all over the service. And the Jews are like, oh, no, you don't understand. This is Christianity. And they're like, uh-uh. So we have this, this blended family dispute. That is what's going on here in this, in this culture. So I don't know if, you, if you're married. Some, sometimes this happens. Like if, if your spouse leaves for a week or like, not just like a day, but a, a couple days or a week, you kind of fall back into this independence mode, right? You eat whenever or if you want to. You don't have to put stuff away. And you just, you, I just blast through my day doing whatever I want. And there's sort of like this carnage trail behind me. And then like a day before Donna comes back, I got I to gotta figure it out. But, but then she comes back and all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, I, I, I can't just do my own thing. Because I'm used to just, you know, like living in the garage, <laughs> doing stuff. Anyway, so this is what this is like. The Jews go away and, and the Gentiles grow in independence. The Jews come back and they're like, ah, what do we do? 
So this is going to challenge their unity, all right? All right, and the Jews are like, well, hey, if you want to become part of the church, you're going to have to understand this Jewish history, heritage, not the law for salvation, but just their culture. And the Gentiles are like, no, we were doing fine without you. All right, so, and now they're sitting next to each other in church. This is what's going on. This is the context, okay? So this is where we're at here. Now, um, the third missionary journey, the next time around, he, he goes back up through Antioch. He, he writes... Um, 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, he writes 2 Corinthians from Macedonia, but here's where we are. Rome is up here, top left in Italy, and he writes Rome from Corinth, and Phoebe, chapter 16, Phoebe carries the letter there, and um, we'll get to this in chapter 16, but just a bunny trail here, academic little bunny trail. Um, have you ever heard the, the cultural expectation in the first century that that if somebody carries a letter it was expected they would read the letter teach the letter if you, you hear this and so i i've been reading books digging in to the details and it's nowhere it didn't happen you have all people say that happened and if you look at the footnotes and i did so you've got first maccabees 12 you've got xenophon Cyropedia, it's a biography of alexander the great that they cite that this proves it and it and it doesn't and then Ephesians 6, Colossians 4, Tychicus, carry the letter. And all it says is Tychicus, he says, he will tell you what's going on. Anyway, so just heads up, when you hear things, you hear a lot of things that, that sound, oh, I've heard that from 14 places. Doesn't make it true. Anyway, and plus it doesn't really make sense. Would Paul really have a letter? He's like, I've got to send this to Rome, but I have to find somebody who's available, who can go to Rome, and who's theologically sophisticated enough to teach my letter well i i could ask you to go but you you, you can't teach rome romans it, it's just and, and it doesn't really work that way like if you show up with a letter you don't ask the mailman hey can can you read my letter to me you you take the letter anyway it's just a funny thing okay so that's another that's another day but um paul in the first three chapters of romans is addressing three people Wicked Hellenistic pagans. They are not in the church, but this is where people come from in the church. Former Hellenistic pagan. Now, these are believing Gentiles, and then you got believing Jews. You recognize those guys, right? Anyway, so, um, and this is not chapter 1, 2, 3. This is chapter 1. The last two, former Hellenistic pagans and believing Jews, those are going to be detailed next week in chapter 2. So that's kind of where we're at. So he deals with this, um, this pagan culture. All right, so... Let's get to the text here. What, chapter 1, verse 1. I love it. Well, how, how does Paul describe himself? Third word in, if A is a word. I don't know if A is a word. Paul, A. If you have the NET version, it says slave. Doulos. Paul, a slave. Now, remember in this culture, okay, here's the hierarchy in this culture. If you're a wealthy um, person in a, in a home, you're the master. Now, look at the hierarchy. You're the master. Beneath you are the, is the mistress and children, then the steward, then the foreman, and then the permanent hired staff, and then the day laborers, and then the slaves. <laughs> They're like the bottom of a very long social hierarchy. And Paul is like, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Remember, in this culture, everyone wants to get as far as they can away from the slavery thing to the master, to the honor, to the prestige. Remember the client patron system we kind of alluded to? Like, like if, if I, I have these people whatever boast about me and so anyway it's interesting that that he is going to move this letter in a way that invites people to go down 
And he's going to point out you are free to serve, not so insecure that you have to clamor to be served. It's a beautiful power that he's talking about. In fact, in Romans 12, this is one of his application points. Listen to this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. See that? that that's, a, that's a come down the social ladder and don't try to be elevated up too high. Okay, so he also says he's an apostle. And um, getting some echo there. And an apostle, just in case you're wondering, is uh, it's simple, simply a disciple that's given authority. Matthew 10 is, is a classic verse. He called his 12 disciples, gave them authority, and he sent out the apostles. It's just like a formula, all right? All right, so he goes on here, and um, he talks about the gospel of God. He has to distinguish that. And then um, this is really, let's dig into this here. Paul's better gospel. In Romans 1, 1 through 4, especially verse 2, he says, Jesus, well, I'll just kind of read it here. This is chapter 1, verse 2 promised beforehand in scripture so he's like my gospel i'm not making this up you can look it up it's promised in the scriptures concerning his son who was a descendant from david according to the flesh so he has the right to rule who was declared to be the son of god in the power according to the spirit by the resurrection from the dead hellenism do you does your gospel have resurrection power I don't think you do. Your gospel will fail. So this is Paul's better gospel, the gospel of God, promised beforehand, descended from David, declared to be the Son of God, resurrected from the dead. This is what Paul is talking about. He's like, I'm not making this up. My gospel is anchored in the Old Testament. And he remember he quoted Habakkuk, the righteous soul of my faith. So it's, it's all he has to make sure. Because people are accusing him all the time. You're a lone ranger. You're crazy. This stuff is, is um, not true. And he's like, it is true. Look it up. Okay, so that's where he's going with his, with his gospel. Moving on to verses 8, 9, and 10. Um, he's thankful for them. He wants to share with them. And now verses 11 through 15. He's eager to preach to them. He's not ashamed. All right, so I'm going to kind of skip down here to um, the verse 16. Not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to everyone who believes. When a Jew hears everyone who believes, Jews are they're familiar with the Old Testament, they're familiar with the Abrahamic covenant. I just think that that's a springboard Paul is intentionally using, because in Abraham, all the families will be blessed through faith. And so the Jew would hear this, everyone who believes, it's like, it's like a little crack, like, Gentiles are supposed to be welcomed. You see that? Everyone who believes, not just the Jew. He says the Jew first because the Old Testament's their story, but also to the Gentiles. So, so, so blended family with trouble, understand. Sure, the Jews have this long story. It's not exclusively theirs, but that story does lead to the new story. Gentiles, you have to understand, appreciate. And so this is kind of, you know, get along. He's not ashamed of this. All right. So... The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were a little suspicious of the Gentile believers. The Roman Christians from the Hellenistic culture were, were a little suspicious of Jewish Christians, and so they had, they had some work to do. He, and in verse 17, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, The righteous shall live by faith. Faith 
is everything. We're just justified by faith. If you zoom out, one of the questions that these people are asking in these early churches is, is how, do I, how do I find righteousness? Where I, I looked on eBay, I can't find it. Where do I find righteousness? And so Paul is saying it's going to be by faith, not by works, because that's going to fit into their tension in their culture. All right? And then he gets into the heart and core of what we're doing here. And um, so the gospel, number one, it's, it's to the Jew first. Number two, it's faith-centered, it's by faith. And number three, it's needed because look at the depravity of mankind. Hellenist, Hellenistic gospel broke, it failed. It doesn't provide and produce pleasure that lasts. It produces corruption and evil and wickedness. So he's, he's going to um, blow this up. Okay, so he's writing to the Hellenistic people here, and here's, uh, I'm trying to summarize this so you can catch it. Number one, group number one, that's all we're talking about today, chapter number one, man is the measure of all things. I can do what I want to do, God's word says this, but I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to be fulfilled. That gospel fails. It doesn't work. The problems with this Hellenistic culture, and our culture, it suppresses God's truth, it ignores God's revelation, it exchanges God's glory for man's glory, and, um, and we get stuck in it. And behind all that, that, that's a vacuum, that's a negative statement, but behind that is the fulfillment, the true fulfillment of Paul's gospel, the gospel of grace. All right? So, where he's going to go with this is we all, Jews, Gentiles, pagan culture, no matter how you try to define righteousness, you can make it up yourself. Go ahead, make up your own standards and you will fall short of your own standards. It just doesn't work. And we all feel, it, we all feel some degree of insecurity because we, we look at a sunset and, 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 and crazy cool things in nature and under the ocean, like, what is that? And we're like, yeah, it probably didn't just happen. <laughs> I think if somebody made all this stuff, he's way better, more powerful, more holy than me, and I'm in trouble. So therefore, I don't want to feel like I'm in trouble, so I'll just say it just happened. I'm free to do my own thing and live. Okay, that's kind of how our, our culture, not all the time, but okay. So, verse 18, suppressing God's truth, all right? This is the first one up. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness by men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. We, we suppress the truth, right? Sometimes you'll have that inkling of the Holy Spirit, and, and it, it's not always intentional, but it's just sort of like, I'm going to do my own thing. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. Okay. So, um, when it says here, God's wrath, I, I want to be sure you understand that that's not like he's, Picture, I should have a picture of like the Star Wars, the, the Dark Lord guy, the, when, when Luke Skywalker and he's like got this, the, the lightning coming out of his, like, that's just a great, I think that's a very common picture of how many people think of the wrath of God. Just, just, he's just, just I'm going to get you and, and cause you to suffer. This, this is not that. God is like, you are so insistent on living your own way. Okay, there you go. And it's not like a deistic sense and that God is not interacting. He is consigning you to the logical consequences of your choices. He is allowing you to jump in that river and let it take you over the waterfall. You're so determined to do your own thing. He will let you. And this is a terrifying thought. Judgment is often 
getting exactly what you want. If you are so hard-hearted living your way, the Hellenistic way, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, God will let you do it. And in so judging us, and then we're like, what? I thought I, was, I thought I was on the path to happiness. Yeah, except that gospel fails, all right? So, suppressing God's truth. Uh, number two, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain. God has showed it to them. His invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world. And this is where you can look at a bird, a butterfly, a sun, uh, whatever you want to, and you can learn some things about the nature of God. This is, this is a little bunny trail here about usually backpack trips with um, gray students. And, and we're up in the mountains and it would say, okay, everybody come, let's, let's, do, uh, let's do devotional time. Uh, leave your Bibles in your tent. And they're like, what? What? And so I would gather around in a circle, I would look at the mountains, and I would say, we're going to try to do what David in the Psalms was really good at, but because we have the full scripture, we have New Testament, we are horrible at it. In fact, we freak out because we, when someone suggested, I said, look at nature and come up with concrete, clear, different attributes of God's character because of what you see in the beauty around you. And I'm not saying God is in the mountains and all that. No, no. God made it so it should show his thumbprints. And it, it took about 10 minutes for them to like, like, what are you talking about? But eventually it unlocks our mind to, un, to think about the world like, like the Old Testament people. Because David's always up talking about that kind of stuff. Anyway, it's kind of fun to do. So I invite you to do that. But back to our previously scheduled program. So, so the point is creation holds us accountable. Now that this is troubling. Have you heard this before? Creation is enough to condemn us, but it's not enough to save us? Who made that rule up? That's just the way it is. This is what it's saying. Natural revelation, creation, is enough to make us culpable. This is his point here, but not enough. His point is you can't say, oh, I didn't know. Yeah. You ever see the sun and the moon? Guilty. Okay. That's what he's talking about. And this is kind of Psalm 19. This is what he's talking about. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day, every day it's shouting, even though there's no audible real words. It's just visual and stuff. But that's what he's, that's what he's talking about. So, and then they exchange God's glory. In verse 21. For all they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, foolish, their hearts were darkened. darkened. Now, don't get too hung up with, oh, they knew God. Doesn't mean they're Christians. It just means they knew enough about him to know what they're doing is wrong. And they shoved it down, suppressed the truth anyway, okay? And then verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged. Now, this is, there's this exchange series here. There's three exchanges um, they exchanged the glory of God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. This is that judgment. There you go. I'm going to consign you to the consequences of your choices. We can choose our sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. That's just above our pay grade. So God is like, choose your sin, but I'm going to consign you the consequences. God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie. It's not just any lie, it's the lie. There's an article here. So the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions, consigning them to consequences. Okay. 
Um, <clears throat> part of parenting is, is helping little ones understand that in the world in which we live, cause and effect is a real thing. There are consequences to things you do. You, know, you, you, you touch the stove, you get burned. You know what I mean? And, um, when I was a kid, I mean, super little, one of my first memories, two memories, the ironing board was there. Mom said, don't touch the iron. And I touched the iron. I'm like, oh, <laughs> and then she's making, she was like knitting me some kind of cool slippers. And she, she, they were going to have a ball on the slippers. And there's some kind of cardboard circle that was part of her thing. I don't know. All I remember is I'm holding the cardboard ring and scissors. And my mom, I remember, I must've been like three or four. I don't know. John, don't cut that. I need that to make your, don't cut that. I'm not making your slippers. Ah, just like, just like my world's falling apart. So part of parenting is helping kids understand, yeah, there are consequences to things that we do. And I, it's fun as I'm older now, I just find myself being a lot more careful about certain, when I'm working on things and just bashing into it and just, you know, getting the saw out and starting cutting stuff. It's like, let's just think this through. And to go through it without major expense is, is fun. Didn't think that way when I was younger. It's okay. Anyway, so exchange the truth. They worshipped the creature rather than the <laughs> worship the creature rather than the creator. That is pure Hellenism. Man is the measure. Taking God and flipping it and saying, "Now God serves me." We're, we're flipping it. This is Hellenism, pure and simple. And he says, "Worship." Now you've probably heard this, but you know. You can't separate people into people who worship and people who don't worship. Everybody worships something. We are worship machines. We can't help but worship. The trick is to understand God is the only one worthy of our worship. Adoration, attention, devotion, affection. Okay, that's, that's the source of life. This is where I need to invest my purpose, meaning, and, and value. Everything we do and say, every decision is coming out of the worship category of our heart and soul, right? And it's difficult. It doesn't mean you have to be ascetic and like, oh, if you have fun riding a bicycle, then that must be wrong. No, but then it's also wrong to like quit my job and move to Moab and buy 50 bikes so I can just bike all day. It's like, well, that, that's odd. What happened to Pastor John? <laughs> okay, so we live in this balance of the physical world. It, it's not wrong to have pleasure, but, but it's, it's, it's a horrible master, right? It shouldn't rule our hearts. Okay, so those are, uh, everything we do has a verticality, verticality, a vertical component to it, connected to God, all right? We worship Jesus. This is why we're here. We have his word. We have each other. We have great music and and and. and studies and groups and, and we we hold each other accountable and because we're just built to drift right okay we've always been tempted to worship the creature rather than the creator and um eventually that drift lands us in idolatry we take a good thing and it becomes an ultimate thing that's idolatry okay so the lie what is the lie for us the lie for us is that we can be good without god that secular reasoning is the only reasoning that matters. Under secular reasoning is, is a deep suspicion of religious thinking. Progress is everything. We just want to make progress. And if you have any kind of standards that block our progress, social standards, moral standards, then you are in the way of our progress, all right? Um, science reasoning is, is number one. And so they're going to be super critical of uh, anything with religion. They think it's just made up and it's going to impede their change in policy. So this is one a way to look at the gospel of America. 
Okay, so secular humanism, that's where we live. Can you spot it? If you have grandkids, would be a good conversation to, to be able to be looking at whatever you're doing and, and just start a question, you know, a question. Well, what does God say about that? You know? And not just because it's right, wrong, and, and you know, all this, but because life flourishes with God's plan, with God's order. There's life and freedom and joy, contentment. And when we embrace the gospel of Hellenism and pursue our own way, just anxiety and angst. It's the way it is, all right? So, moving on here. Oh, by the way, 2014, secular humanism was defined as a religion. That's interesting. All right. And then exchange. This is a heavy-duty passage here that does not bode well in our culture. Chapter 1, verse 26, 27, 28. Um, he gets into it. He says, Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men, likewise, it's actually males and females. Not just women and men, but male and female. Uh, males, likewise, give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with other men, receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, contrary to nature, um, who, who defines what's natural? God has, by creating male and female, that's natural. And, and stepping out of that is unnatural. This is his point. Paul doesn't hate homosexual people, okay? He's, he's living in a culture, there's this thing called pedestry. And it's, it, it's just, I can't even start to talk about the perversion here in public, but it's just shocking that in the Roman culture, um, older men and younger boys, they would, just, they would just practice, and there was such abuse, it was common through the whole culture. That's just the way the culture worked. And there's a lot more of that that I just don't, I'm, I'm sad to know, okay? That's, that's the way it is. But, um, so he, he's, he's simply saying that this, this is, a, is a relationship that doesn't come from God's plan. It's not natural, okay? And then he goes on, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil. In case you're thinking, oh, well, I haven't done that since, so I'm good to go. He, he, he just starts to unload the truck. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Feeling good so far? What about now? Gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Wow, that's a list. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, that's us. We're all here. Though they know God's righteousness, again, not in a saving way, but know enough about it, to, they can't say, I didn't know. That those who practice such things deserve to die. They know that. Judgment is a normal thing for violating God's standard. They not only do them, but they approve those who practice them. Good job. Keep going. And Paul says that's, that's a huge problem. All right. So I said it before. Natural man, we are allergic to God and allies with sin. And when we find faith and justification by faith, righteousness by faith, we become allergic to sin and allies with God. Our new nature, everything just changes. Uh, some things change instantly and other, cha other thing changes just uh, ripple on throughout life. Okay. All right. So he's turned them over to the consequences of their own lie. And so when we lust and pursue our physical gratifications, 
we're thinking we're moving towards fulfillment, happiness. Well, when we sin, we're thinking, well, this is a good idea because of X. I'm going to get this, and I want that. And it's not always that formal, because if we analyze it that way, we'd be like, yeah, that's, that's dumb. But we do it. We have, we have a motivation. But here's a quote. Lust is the craving for salt of a man who is dying of thirst. Imagine the desert crawling along dying of thirst. And you're like, I just want a bucket of salt. That's, that's a picture of temptation and the enemy's desire to destroy us. He destroys us through principalities, worldviews, ideas. Okay, So here's a, I love Far Side. Um, for, for those of you that can't see the image, um, there's a car with four slugs in it driving to the Great Salt Lake, and the driver says, hey, everybody, time for a swim. It just reminds me of us when we're following our lust. Oh, this is going to be fun. And it's like, no, you're, you're a slug, and you're going to dive into a pool of salt, and I guess, what, do they dissolve? I don't know. Anyway, I'm not arguing for the annihilation of the soul by this. <laughs> okay, anyway. Tommy Nelson says, lust is the ever-increasing desire for ever-decreasing pleasure. The ever-increasing desire for ever-decreasing pleasure. Unless you have the right gospel, you're going to be trapped in that cycle. There's only one gospel that fulfills, and that's the gospel of Paul, um, and of God, of Jesus, all right? So, when we embrace Paul's gospel, we move from ruin to righteousness. We receive a new nature. We're going to talk about that in depth in Romans 6, 7, and, and on. Um, and we find freedom to serve others, to go down the social hierarchy instead of demanding that we're a big deal. So Paul here in this chapter, he's saying that, that across all humanity, people are generally aware of God's goodness and their badness. And that's where he's starting out, because now he's going to start to get into chapter 2 about the Jews and Gentiles and, and um, how the gospel affects them. So we always like to end up with a couple questions. And so uh, do you find yourself ever embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel? Paul didn't, and he was in the heart of the Roman Empire that was the producer of their powerful, got, cultural, powerful gospel. What stories do you have about the gospel's power or the gospel's peace in your own life? Can you share those with family members? What aspects of secular progressive humanism, the lie of our culture, do you find most insidious, most invasive to your heart? Those are good questions to, to, to ruminate on. Maybe talk about them in, in your groups and stuff. Um, all right. So we're going to wrap up. Lord, thank you for the gospel of truth, the powerful gospel that sets us free from our sin. We live in such a crazy time. It is so confusing to know which, what's, you know, what's, I was going to say what's right and wrong. Well, we know that, but there's so many things that, that are gray. And I pray that you'd give us wisdom, compassion, love, patience as we wade into those issues. That we would love you because of who you are. That we would let you love us. I pray that if we have any characters of, of who you are that are inaccurate, that we would allow you to rewrite our vision of who you are. That your goodness would flood over our hearts. That we would move towards you because of the grace the gospel of grace. Man, and especially the people that we have tension with, would, would we understand the way the gospel works by grace and not by performance matters in that relationship? And may your spirit work in us in a powerful way. Amen.